This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Europe, The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam by Douglas Murray in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or check out my website for downloads. Chapter 10, The Tyranny of Guilt. In the first days of September, when the body of the three-year-old Syrian boy, Al- Eiling Kurdi washed up on a beach in Turkey, the reaction in Europe was almost unanimous. It was, as several newspaper headlines put it, Europe's shame. When it was reported that the Kurdi family had been looking to join family in Canada and had already one visa application there turned down, Eilin Kurdi's death became an issue in North America. Some campaigning for the following month's general election in Canada was suspended, Polit political opponents of the Stephen Harper government that was then in office made significant capital out of Canada's alleged failure to save the life of the three-year-old. The Harper government lost the subsequent election. The general feeling of guilt and shame spread across Europe and North America and pushed aside all practical questions of precisely what could have been done for the Curdy family or all the other families that might wish to come after them. So great was this outpouring of guilt that several pertinent facts were lost entirely. Not least among them was the fact that the Kurdi family had set out from a safe country, Turkey. The father had chosen to leave that country, where he had paid employment, to get his family into Europe. The body of his young son had not washed up on a European beach, but on a Turkish beach, and though there was some media mourning in Turkey over the tragedy, there was not anything there remotely like the introspection and self-accusation indulged by Western politicians and media. Although parts of the wider Arab and Muslim world also lingered on the tragedy, it led to nothing like the policy challenge that this presented in the West. Indeed, the tragedy highlighted at least one extraordinary disparity, not just between European and Middle Eastern reactions, but between European and Middle Eastern asylum attitudes. For although Lebanon, Jordan, and Turkey had taken in huge numbers of refugees from the wars in neighboring Syria and Iraq and received substantial financial support from the international community for doing so, the attitude of the wider Middle East to such humanitarian crises never mind to the multiple additional humanitarian and economic crises across Africa in the Far East, stood in total opposition to that of the European governments and media. Where European countries took the drowning of a three-year-old boy on their own consciences, the Arab world from which the boy came, and the wider Muslim Ummah, remained strikingly unmoved to action. For instance, the six Gulf cooperation countries comprising Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Oman had granted asylum to a grand total of zero Syrian refugees by 2016. Their attitude towards refugees from Eritrea, Nigeria, Bangladesh, and Pakistan was not even as generous as that. Only a few months before Eileen Kurdi's death, one Kuwaiti official, Fahad al-Shalami, explained in an interview on France 24 why Gulf countries like his were refusing asylum to Syrian refugees. Quote, Kuwait and the Gulf countries are expensive and are not suitable for refugees, he explained. They are suitable for workers. The transportation is expensive. The cost of living in Kuwait is high, whereas the cost of living in Lebanon or Turkey is perhaps cheaper. Therefore, it is much easier to pay the refugees to stay there. At the end of the day, you cannot accept other people who come from a different atmosphere from a different place. These are people who suffer from psychological problems and from trauma. You cannot just place them in the Gulf societies, he explained, end quote. Such an attitude is not surprising. 
Al-Shalami was simply trying to protect his society from the problems he believes it would inherit if very large numbers of war-torn refugees entered. What is strange is that the default attitude of Europe is to agree that the Gulf states and other societies are fragile, whereas Europe is endlessly malleable. Nobody in Europe blamed Turkey or Oman for the death of Alian Kurdi, and while the Spanish Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy said of another migrant boat sinking in the Mediterranean that Europe risked, quote, damaging our credibility if we are not able to prevent these tragic situations, end quote, few people claimed that Arab or African credibility was at stake. Indeed, throughout the Syrian portion of the refugee crisis alone, next to nobody blamed the countries actually involved in that civil war, including Iran, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Russia, for the human cost of the conflict. There was no wide European call for Iran to take in refugees from the conflict any more than there was any pressure to insist, say, Qatar to take its fair proportion of refugees. There are many political and strategic assumptions that lie beneath such a failure, but there is also a moral self-absorption that overrides it all. And that moral self-absorption did not begin with the refugee crisis. Rather, it is one of the underlying themes of all of contemporary Europe, a unique, abiding, and perhaps finally fatal sense of and obsession with guilt. In April 2015, Another migrant boat had sunk in the Mediterranean. The Swedish MEP Cecilia Wilkstrom stepped up her existing campaign for migrants to be given legal and safe routes into Europe. The failure to do so, she insisted, would be compared by future generations to the Holocaust. Quote, I think that my children and grandchildren are going to ask, ask why more wasn't done to help people running away from ISIS or violence in Eritrea or wherever when we knew that people were dying in their thousands. People will ask the same questions they did after that war, saying, if you were aware, why didn't you do something? For example, in Sweden, they allowed railroad roads to be used to transfer Jews to death camps in Nazi Germany. There are more refugees in the world today than during and after that Second World War. The world is on fire at the moment, and we need to cope with that, end quote. In Germany, politicians did not need to be so explicit. All Germans listening would know precisely what it was that Angela Merkel was referring to during her big announcement of August 31st, 2015. She said, quote, The world sees Germany now as a land of hope and chances, and that wasn't always the case. End quote. It was a reference that resonated with them, in which they felt was relevant. In those crucial days of late August, there had been protests outside a refugee center and an arson attack on a facilities for migrants in the East German town of Heidenau. When the chancellor subsequently appeared in town, she was roundly booed and heckled by the crowds. Other Germans watched this in horror and were ready to act to show a different side of their country. In the first days of September, hundreds of thousands of people were crossing from southern Europe up through Serbia, Hungary, and Austria and into Germany. As the chancellor threw her country's doors open, these countrymen took up the challenge. At the borders and at train stations in Munich and Frankfurt, crowds of hundreds of people gathered to welcome the arriving migrants. This footage went around the world. Here were crowds of Germans not merely offering assistance to the migrants as they arrived, but giving them what they often looked like a welcome party. Migrants who had traveled across at least one continent looked dazed and often jubilant as they walked into crowds of Germans applauding and cheering on all sides. The welcoming committees waved ba balloons and banners like, with slogans like, Welcome and We Love Refugees on them. 
As the trains came into the stations and the migrants got off and went through the crowds, some locals wolf-whistled and gave them high fives. Human chains of volunteers handed out food and gifts, including sweets and teddy bears, to the children. It was not just an expression of the Willkommensculture, or welcoming culture, that Germany says it likes to practice. These migrants were not merely being welcomed. They were being celebrated, as though they were the local football team returning triumphant or heroes returning from war. Among the recipients of this greeting, some got into the spirit, raising their hands or punching the air as they passed through this guard of honor. This spirit did not only affect the Germans. People came from across Europe to take part in this effort, and the historical parallels were explicit everywhere. Two students from Britain went to the Austrian-Hungarian border with a car to ferry migrants into Munich. Interviewed by the media, one said, We're here because seeing scenes on television, the thought belongs to the 1940s, and because the historical parallels here are so reminiscent of things like the Underground Railway. And you just like to ask yourself, what would you have done then? And I would like to say I would have helped, which is why we're here today. This parallel was not confined to those around Germany. Second World War parallels were breaking out across Europe. In Denmark, migrants were already pouring across the Orisund Bridge to Sweden by train. They did not need passports because there was no border. But not everyone found this to be a powerful enough image. During the war, when the Nazis de ordered the deportation of Jews from Denmark, local Danish resistance famously and heroically spirited nearly all, all of Denmark's 8,000-strong Jewish community across the water to neutral Sweden in the dead of night. And so it was that in September 2015, a 24-year-old Danish politician by the name of Annika Holm-Nielsen began transporting migrants in her yacht across the five-mile stretch of water between Copenhagen and the Swedish city of Malmö. A man called Abdul, who had come up from Germany and whom she met in Copenhagen's central station, was ferried by her across the choppy waters in a trip that was inevitably compared in the media to the actions of the resistance in 19. 43. Nielsen herself denied that this was something symbolic and insisted that it simply seemed the safest thing to do. Never mind that Abdul's onward journey to Sweden would have been safer, swifter, and more comfortable if Miss Nielsen had simply allowed him to get on the train to Malmo like everybody else. During September 2015, gestures like this fitted the narrative. It was a narrative that many people forming the welcoming parties at the train stations of Germany stated explicitly that this was in some way a remedy for what had happened in the 30s and 40s. The almost hysterical behavior of the crowds radiated a sense of not just relief but ecstasy, that here were people migrating into Germany rather than migrating out of it. Instead of being a country fled from because their lives were in danger, Germany had become a place where people escaping war and persecution were finally fleeing to. But of course, there were several serious problems with this. The comparison between the migrants of 2015 and the Jews of the Nazi era really breaks down in several places. Firstly, the Jews who fled Hitler were desperate for any other country to live in. Germany's 2015 arrivals had walked through numerous countries, including European ones, before arriving in Germany. Secondly, although large numbers of Syrians, among other migrants, certainly were fleeing for their lives, to compare all of these migrants, including the economic migrants, with the Jews of the 1930s was not just to diminish the suffering of the exiles from Hitler's Germany, it was to insist that Europe had absolutely no choice other than to take in everybody who wanted to come, because to do so would be branded as a Nazi. 
Whether they knew it or not, the Germans and others who crowded onto the streets and platforms of their country to celebrate these new arrivals were taking part in a historical process, far beyond them. Even this emotional act came, when needed, with the same intellectual <clears throat> ballast as every other argument in post-war immigration. Among those interviewed on the television news, a number explained that because of Germany's demographics and labor shortages, it made sense for the country to bring in these hundreds of thousands of new people. But these rationales appeared to be secondary. There were explanations to back up a decision that had already been taken. The original instinct of a section of the population and their political representatives was the more significant one, and just the latest and most visible expression of a historical burden that many Europeans felt themselves to be carrying. The Stain of Europe Contemporary Europeans may not be the only people in the world to feel they have been born into original sin, but they certainly appear to suffer from the worst case of it. Today, your, today's Europeans expect themselves, long before anybody else raises it, to bear specific historical guilt that comprises not only war guilt and Holocaust guilt, but a whole gamut of preceding guilt. These include, and they are by no means limited to, the abiding guilt for colonialism and historic racism. And though, although all of this adds up to a hefty burden, it is no longer one we are expected to bear alone. In recent decades, the same blackmail from history that has afflicted modern Europe has also been assumed by a group of noticeably homogenous states. What is striking is that all of the other countries expected to suffer for the same sins are country for whose creation Europe is blamed, so that the impression appears to be that the stain of the Europeans crisscrosses the whole world. Whereas for contemporary Europeans, colonialism is just one of our middle-ranking midway sins, for Australians, colonialism has become the nation's founding, original sin. But not, other, but not because like European, and not because like European nations, it stands accused of having plundered other countries in search for wealth, but because it stands accused of plundering itself, of being a, colonial, a colonialist project still sitting on its colony. For Australia, colonialism is said to have started at home. Today's Australian schoolchildren are taught that whatever is present virtues, their nation was founded on genocide and theft. The fact that those original colonial forces were also white and European makes the act unsurpassably worse than it would be were the story the equally familiar one of dark-skinned peoples taking land from other dark-skinned peoples. The conquering of one group by another and the ill-treatment of the losers by the victors is the story of most nations on earth. But for Australians, the historic treatment of the Aborigines, Aborigines and other First Peoples is a subject that has in recent decades moved from the margins of public date, debate to the core, to the country's deepest founding sin. Strangely, this narrative of guilt seems actually desired and welcomed by the Australian society. As with anything that people truly desire, some inflation of the truth is bound to occur along the way, and so, in Australia, the policies of missionaries and officials in removing some aboriginal children from their generations, or from their parents, or the stolen generation, has even been promoted to a genocide. It has been the focus of numerous popular books, films, government inquiries, and repeated apologies from politicians including prime ministers. Rebuttals are hard to introduce, because even the most extreme claims are welcomed, whereas the contradiction is only taken as evidence of the culprit's ongoing denial and racism. 
As a consequence, all that appears left open for discussion in Australia today is what degree of compensation ought to be distributed to Aboriginal communities for this historic hurt. The cumulative effect of this ingrained guilt has caused a palpable change in the world's impression of Australia and in the country's image of itself, from a generally sunny and optimistic place to one that has become palpably darker, not to mention, mention mawkish about its past. In recent years, this has expressed itself in such popular acts such as the Sea of Hands display, in which hundreds of thousands of citizens have sponsored and signed a large plastic hand in Aboriginal colors to be placed on the lawn in front of public buildings, including the Parliament in Canberra. Another ritual in which people have taken part by the thousands is the signing of names in the national Sari books. Since 1998, there has also been an annual National Sari Day in Australia. Naturally, like all original sins, the one for which Australians are continually being invited to apologize could not conceivably be corrected. Many of the people who now live in Australia may be descended from Europeans and other settlers, but they themselves thieved no land and stole no generation. If they inherited any land, they, most of them did so without oppressing or usurping a soul. And although the economic and employment opportunities of the country's Aborigines may still lag behind that of other Australians, and by a very long way, this resurrects an insuperable conundrum. For now, as in the past, Australians desiring to collect their policies toward the Aborigines cannot square the circle of how to preserve indigenous lifestyles without encouraging or forcing them to enjoy exactly the same lifestyle as everybody else, in the process wiping out their culture. The Australian vogue for self-blame is no longer unusual. Indeed, the 2008 apology by Prime Minister Kevin Rudd to the indigenous people of Australia happened within months of a similar apology to the indigenous peoples of Canada given by that country's Prime Minister, Stephen Harper. Both apologies were widely welcomed as demonstrating a statesmanlike atonement for a painful period of history. Few dissenting voices were listened to, and even the historical record seemed for a time incapable of being honestly assessed. In Canada, as in Australia and in all similar cases, the desire to talk up the scale of the crimes being apologized for should have been some giveaway. Anybody standing before a real court for real crimes who boasts of having performed worse crimes than those for which they were on trial would be deemed unfit to stand trial. Yet if one is not really in the dock or guilty oneself, but merely speaking for their dead predecessors, perhaps the tendency towards hyperbole grows. For present-day politicians, there are only political points to be scored from such statements, and the larger the sin, the larger the outrage, the larger the apology, then the larger the potential political gain for sorrow expressed. Through such statements, political leaders can gain the benefits of magnanimity without the stain of involvement. The person making the apology has done nothing wrong, and all the people who could have received the apology are dead. This is a mania, clearly. A specific and common European mania. The political calculus appears to be that making such statements is an entirely cost-free exercise, except that it isn't. Because nations whose leaders appear to be constantly offering up apologies for their country's history may finally appear, in a world in which such apologies are prodigious from some countries yet entirely absent from others, they appear to be nations that have special cause for such guilt. If Australia is forever opening up and apologizing for its own past while China remains silent, the impression may eventually be instilled in children in Australia 
inasmuch as anywhere else, that Australia is the country with more to apologize for. And while upgrading big historical mistakes into genocides may be cost-free for polemical scholars and ambitious politicians, they focus an impression of wrongdoing that may eventually burrow not only into the world's view of a particular nation, but deep into that nation's view of itself. Beyond an appropriate level of historical humility, what can actually be achieved by the extremes of such a tendency? Even if Australia had been born in sin, there is nothing that can be done to rectify it. Other than, centuries after its founding, for everyone in Australia to be divided out by race, and those believed to have been descended from earliest settlers ordered to hand over their wealth to anyone believed, after appropriate genetic testing, to be descended from the others, the indigenous. The genetic codes of those mixed race would perhaps be adjudicated by a genetics, by a genetics court, which, depending on the findings, might then order people to give up some wealth, get a cash windfall, or keep a precise amount depending on their DNA tests. If theft is the crime, then restitution is the only possible punishment. I'm taking a time out from the book for a second. That sounds really dystopian. Anyways, back to the book. Absenting such an unlikely conclusion, the interim agreement appears to be that Australians can continue to reside in Australia so long as they live in a state of perpetual remorse, an attitude supplemented by regular tribute to Aboriginal culture, including Aboriginal art, and the generalized depiction of Indigenous cultures as possessing some especial parody or truth that can then be compared unfavor unfavorably with contemporary Australia. In recent years, this trope has developed into Australia's version of the noble savage myth. This portrays what went, on, what went before the present as better or purer, even where it was demonstrably worse. It depicts as sympathetic those behaviors that would ordinarily cause people to abandon sympathy. It is a fashion of romantic primitivism that may have come to fruition in modern Australia, but does not only exist there. Another country that can now be blamed as an export of the Europeans is the one that by economic standards is also the most successful country on earth. For several countries, centuries after he landed somewhere in the Bahamas, Christopher Columbus's quote-unquote discovery of America was thought to be a good thing, and Columbus himself celebrated for his heroic deeds. Four centuries after his arrival, to a, immigrants to America were still putting up statues to him raised by public subscription. By the fifth century anniversary of the, of the event in 1992, the calculus had changed. Columbus was no longer the discoverer of America. He was, in fact, the destroyer of America. America was now increasingly filled with people who seemed to wish he had never discovered the country in the first place. Columbus himself had been turned from a successful explorer and adventurer into a colonialist and a genocidist. A rash of books published to coincide with the quincentenary made the obligatory claim that the actions of Columbus were in fact the progenitors for the actions of the Nazi Germans. Saying, quote, On the way to Auschwitz, the road's pathway led straight through the heart of the Indies and of North and South America, end quote, is how one author put it. Another popular author wrote a book called The Conquest of Paradise, which presented pre-Columbus America as literally and metaphorically a Garden of Eden, a place in which man and nature were claimed to have lived in perfect harmony. The country that Columbus had brought into being, by contrast, was so appalling that it now looked set to be responsible for the likely destruction of the earth. 
in the years that followed in America, everything to do with Columbus came up for review. Even the National Columbus Day came under attack. Today, numerous cities, starting with Seattle and Minneapolis, have leg legislated to rename Columbus Day as Indigenous Peoples Day, representing an opportunity to focus on the people who were in America before Columbus's discovery, quote-unquote disco discovery. As one descendant of the indigenous peoples told the local radio in Oklahoma City when they were going through this debate, quote, This is something that I've struggled with for a long time. The fact that our country, our state, and our city celebrate this holiday around this man who murdered and enslaved and raped indigenous people and decimated an entire population, end quote. Of course, none of this had happened in her lifetime, nor the lifetime of anybody who she had ever known. Once again, both perpetrators and victims are dead, and there are few, if any, ways to alleviate such sentiments. Although one option is, as in Australia, to play into those agrarian myths and romances that feature around the world but have such a niche in Western post-industrial societies. These see the establishment of modern civilization as having not merely wrecked once beautiful landscapes, but as having filled hitherto unsullied human beings with the deadliest sins of human greed. It is a vision that was encapsulated, though not invented, by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, but has taken on a particular popularity in the late 20th and early 21st century. According to this reckoning, it is Europeans who, when they traveled and colonized around the world, became the Eden-destroying species. Among the sins that Europeans are now accused of having spread around the world is the sin that constitutes the founding sin of America, slavery, and through slavery, racism. To say that American presidents have been apologizing for these for decades is an understatement. The country fought and won a civil war over the issue nearly two centuries ago. Nevertheless, on a visit to Uganda in 1998, President Clinton felt the need to make yet another fulsome apology for the slave trade. If he or anyone among his advisors thought that this would put the matter to rest, they could not have been more wrong. Despite slavery having involved at least as many people at the Ugandan end as at the American end, the, people that, the idea that people of European descent alone should feel continuous guilt for the action of their forebearers is now embedded and helpful to everyone other than those of the guilty nation. In the last couple of decades, as the situation for American blacks has slowly improved, the rhetoric of shame has only increased. America has had black secretaries of state of both parties— Supreme Court justices and a black president, but even in Barack Obama's second term, there were ever louder demands for reparations to be paid to all black Americans. Indeed, the argument got more mainstream than it had in generations, and as though to prove that nothing can ever be truly done to alleviate the sins of the past, during the sixth year of the Obama presidency, it became mainstream thinking to believe that the actions of the ancestors of many white Americans should cause their descendants to give most African Americans a cash settlement for acts carried out centuries before. The, the question of reparations to other ethnic groups who had suffered historic wrongs did not become part of the ensuing debate, such as American Indians. Only Europeans and their descendants remember guilt. Some, so only Europeans and their descendants have continuously to atone for it. In America, such as in Australia, such a constant drumbeat of guilt changes a people's natural feelings about their own past. It transforms feelings of patriotism into shame, or at the very least into deeply mixed emotions, and troubling effects result from this. 
A country that believes it has never done any wrong is a country that could do no wrong at any time. But a country that believes it has only done wrong, wrong or done such a terrible, unalleviated amount of wrong in the past is likely to become a country that is inclined to doubt its ability to ever do good again in the future. It makes a country nervous about itself, whatever the wisdom of its actions. Embedding the idea of original sin in a nation is the best possible way to breed self-doubt. National original sin suggests that you can do little by way of good because you were rotten from the start. A final country also widely blamed on the Europeans, and so often, having, often regarded as having the same original sin is the state of Israel. Since the founding in 1948, its founding sin has only grown louder. Never mind that the creation of Pakistan within the same year as the creation of Israel brought forth unimaginable massacres and necessitated the forced movement of millions of people. The movement and occasional expulsions of thousands of Palestinians in order to create the state of Israel in 1948 has become the original sin of the world's only Jewish nation. State. As the years passed, an Arabic term was popularized for this Nakba, or catastrophe. Very few states have ever been created without the movements of people. Many created in the 20th century, Bangladesh, for instance, witness movements of people and bloodshed far exceeding anything seen in every succeeding decade combined since the creation of Israel. But today it is Israel that is continuously alleged to have been born into this original sin. The citizens of Pakistan or Bangladesh may blame things on the British, but they themselves would never be expected to feel guilt as all Europeans and their descendants are. Of course, in the case of Israel, the state being comparatively new, the most extreme suggestions for how to remedy this situation can seem more plausible. Whereas few people seriously call for everyone of European descent to be expelled from the Americas, it is not unusual, indeed it is policy, in many Middle Eastern countries, for there to be calls for the Europeans of the descendants of Europeans to be expelled from Israel, and for the land to be returned to the sole ownership of the Arab tribes who originally lived there, and in many cases, live there still. And although Middle Eastern history is perhaps even more than most a history of tribes and people usurping and replacing each other without any recourse to any court of historical inquiry to make amends, when it comes to the Palestinian indigenous people, there is alleged to be an answer. And that is because the cause of the victimhood can be traced back to the Europeans. As anybody who has traveled in the region will know, the most benevolent view in the region of how the state of Israel came about is that the Europeans did something wrong in the Holocaust, and now the Arabs are having to pay for it. Australia, America, and Israel are three very different countries on three wholly different continents, all united by Europe. The settlers in America came from Europe. The settlers in Australia came from Europe. And although half the population of Israel are Jews who had to flee Arab lands, the Jews of Israel are widely believed to come solely from Europe. So it is not persecution mania, but simple observation for Europeans to fear that the uniting evil in all of these cases, among many others, is not just people in history who, do, who did bad things, but Europeans who did and might do bad things. And who, considering a people who did so many bad things and on such a scale, could not suspect that they were, in fact, simply bad people. It is understandable if modern Europeans feel themselves to have a certain toxicity. 
Almost alone among all the peoples of the world, Europeans seem capable not only of doing terrible things in their own continent, but of spreading their evils around the world. And as the evil metastasizes, it is also generalized. There are few worse intellectual crimes in Europe than generalizing or essentializing another group of people in the world. Yet generalizing and essentializing are allowed to become rife when the world speaks about Europeans. A European would be scolded for blaming every African for the crimes of every other African or any Asian for the crimes of any Asian. But generalization and a spreading around of historic European faults and crimes onto Europeans as a whole is normal and acceptable. So in a debate over Western culture, even in London, it is not at all surprising to hear speakers telling their audiences that we, not only in Europe but across the West, bear responsibility for Nazism and the Holocaust. The fact that a London audience is more likely to be descended from, and may well include, people who fought against Nazi Germany, rather than bearing any complicity or responsibility, becomes background detail if not overlooked altogether. The world can generalize a way about the West, and Europeans in particular, so long as the generalization relates to the lowest points of the West's history. And while any honest student of history must conclude that every community, race, and group of humans is not only capable of doing terrible things, but has managed to do such things, what a particular entity or era decides to focus on tells you a great deal. Just as telling is what is not focused on and what does not get as much or any meaningful attention. Double Standards in the Triumph of the Masochists The Ottoman Empire was one of the largest and longest sustained empires in world history. For more than 600 years it, world, it ruled a vast swath of land, imposed Islamic religious and cultural ideas on those whom it governed, and by its own system of laws punished those who stood against it. It pushed into Southeast Europe, the Middle East and North Africa by military force, and only because of the strength of a coalition of European armies, at the Battle of Vienna in 1683, did Europe avoid Ottoman rule. In the wake of the First World War, of course, the empire fell apart. But while it did so, it committed one of the worst atrocities in history in the first actual genocide of the 20th century. The destruction of the Armenian population of Anatolian Turkey saw the massacre of more than a million people in a couple years, and hundreds of thousands more made stateless. In 1973, five decades after Turkey's empire fell apart, Turkey invaded a European nation-state, Cyprus. Occupying half of the island, its armies slaughtered Greek Cypriots and drove others from their homes. The occupation continues to this day, despite Turkey being a member of NATO and the southern Greek portion of Cyprus being a member of the European Union. One might concede that Turkey, as a historical force, has been no worse, if certainly no better, than any other country in the world. Who has not carried out an actual genocide, run an empire for twice as long as the British, and invaded a sovereign na nation in recent decades? This is not what is striking. What is striking is that so little of this is ever raised, and Turkish people are rarely if ever made to feel guilt for Turkey's historical role in the world. One part of that is because Turkey's government ensures that this is the case. One of the reasons why modern Turkey is a world leader in imprisoning journalists is because under Article 301 of the country's penal code, it is a crime to insult the Turkish nation. Any mention of the Armenian genocide breaks that law and sees the violator sent to prison. 
and although a contingent of Greek Cypriots continue to complain about the ongoing occupation of the northern half of their country, this has never precluded the British government, among others, from continuing to call for Turkey to become a full member of the European Union. Perhaps it is unsurprising that the Turkish government has never apologized for the excesses of the Ottoman Empire. And perhaps it is unsurprising that the country still forbids by law any mention of its recent history of occupation and ethnic cleansing. What is more surprising is that so few people would use these things against the Turks as a people. If the kind of history now taught in internet and internalized in so much of Europe is intended simply to prevent a replay of those worst aspects of that history, then why should we ask who else? Then we should ask who else should be treated this way. Which other nations ought to be encouraged to feel shame for their past, and if no others do, relying not only on natural pride but also outlawing, outlawing historical inquiry, does Europe not find itself in the strange situation of feeling unusually guilty for being only ordinarily so? The problem is worse. For if historical wrongs must lead to atonement in the present day, then what is the statute of, limita statute of limitations, and to whom else may it apply? As with the Empire Strikes Back theory, it is often stated or implied that Europe must suffer any and all consequences of mass migration because it is part of a process of atonement for historical wrongs. Yet if mass migration is in part an atonement for historical wrongs, such as imperialism, why do we not treat modern Turkey in such the same way? Should Turkey be a country that also deserves to be altered completely? If so, where should we encourage the waves of immigration to come from? Should all Turks not happy with this process be shut down with cries of racism as in Germany or Britain? And when, if ever, should we call a halt to the process? Indeed, if we were at a stage of imposing diversity on people for historical wrongs, why should such diversity not be imposed on places like Iran or Saudi Arabia? Should they not be forced to atone for its history by having minorities from around the world encouraged to head toward it? Since all countries, peoples, religions, and races, in truth, have done something terrible in their time, and since most races and cultures are not punished in this way, why should one not see a specific anti-Western, and in particular, an anti-European motive, behind these recent movements? A curious and disturbing idea lies behind it. For if the concept of historical guilt means anything, it means that a hereditary stain of complicity can be said to pass down from one generation to another. It is true that for many centuries, because of a single verse in the Gospels, some Christians held the Jewish people accountable in such a way. And it took until 1965 for a Catholic Pope to formally lift this historical burden. Burden. But in this and almost every other case, the modern age views this descendant blaming as morally repugnant. The case of the Jews is especially disturbing because it suggests how long such a vendetta can last. The guilt with which modern Europeans now find themselves burdened, by contrast, only began in recent decades. It is a pathology of the late 20th century onwards. So perhaps it could, like the Christian idea of the hereditary guilt of the Jewish people, it could continue for another couple of millennia. Yet even then it is hard to see how it could be lifted. First, because so many Europeans seem to want it to continue. Guilt, as the French philosopher Pascal Bruckner has diagnosed it in his book La Tyrannie de la Pétinence, or de la Penitence, has become a moral intoxicant in Western Europe. People imbibe it because they like it, they get high on it, 
It lifts them up and exalts them. Rather than being people responsible for themselves and answerable to those they know, they become the self-appointed representatives of the living and the dead, the bearers of a terrible history as well as the potential redeemers of mankind. From being a nobody, one becomes a somebody. In 2006, Britain threw up a particularly curious example of this type in the form of one Andrew Hawkins. Mr. Hawkins is a theater director who discovered in midlife that he was a descendant of a 16th century slave trader called John Hawkins. In 2006, he was invited by a charity called Lifeline Expedition, which organizes trips to, quote, heal the past, unquote, to go on a sorry trip to Gambia. The upshot was that Hawkins joined 26 others of similar descent in June of that year who paraded through the streets of the capital with chains around their hands and yokes on their neck. As they walked to the 25,000-seater sports stadium, Hawkins and the other participants also wore t-shirts with words, so sorry, on them. Weeping and on their knees, the group apologized in English, French, and German to about 18,000 people in the stadium but before being ceremonially ceremonially freed of the chains by the Gambian vice president. Holy crap. It might be fair to say that to take part in such a ceremony is to demonstrate a psychological as well as a moral affliction. Mr. Hawkins and his friends were lucky to meet such benevolent recipients of their apology tour as the largely bemused Gambians in front of whom they thrust themselves. Not everybody is so benign before the Western habit of self-flagellation. Many years ago, during one of the not infrequent breakouts or breakdowns in peace talks between the Israelis and the Palestinians, a journalist was interviewing Yasser Arafat in his offices in Ramallah. Toward the end of the interview, one of Arafat's male assistants came into the chairman's office to announce that the American delegation was here. Wondering whether he had stumbled upon a scoop, the journalist asked the chairman who the Americans in the next room were. He said, they are an American delegation who are doing a tour of the region to apologize for the Crusades, said Arafat. Both he and his guest burst out laughing. They both knew that America had little or no involvement in the wars of the 11th to 13th centuries. But Arafat, at any rate, was happy to indulge the affliction of anyone who believed they had and use it to his political advantage. Anyways, the desire to continue to feel yourself guilty arguably finds its endpoint in modern European liberal societies, the first societies in human history who, when they are hit, ask what they did to deserve it. For unassuageable historical guilt carries over into the present. It makes Europeans the guilty party even when they actually are hit or worse. Several years before the latest surge in the migration crisis, a left-wing Norwegian politician named Karsten Nordahl Hauken, a self-described feminist, anti-racist, and heterosexual, was brutally raped in his own home by a male Somali refugee. His attacker was subsequently caught and convicted with the help of DNA evidence. After serving a sentence of four and a half years, the attacker was scheduled for deportation back to his native land. In a subsequent piece for the Norwegian media, Hauken described the guilt that he felt for this. Indeed, he said that his first instincts were, to, were that he felt responsible for his rapist's return to Somalia. Quote, I had a strong feeling of guilt and responsibility, he wrote. It was the reason that he would not be in Norway anymore, but rather sent to a dark, uncertain future. End quote. It is one thing to try to forgive your enemies, but it is another thing entirely to be brutally raped and then worry about the future living arrangements of your assaulter. 
perhaps masochism is a thing that always afflicts a certain number of people at any one time. Perhaps the masochists, like the poor, will always be with us. But a society that rewards those with such tendencies, and indeed tells people with such tendencies that their tendencies are not just natural, but a demonstration of virtue, is a society likely to produce a higher concentration of masochists than most. Of course, all masochists, however large or small in number, have one unique problem they must always confront, which is what happens when they meet an actual sadist. When they meet someone who says, oh, you think you're miserable, terrible, and with no redeeming features? Well, you're right, and we agree. There may be no lack of masochists today in Europe and in the countries for which, for which Europeans feel partially responsible, but there is also no shortage of sadists willing to reinforce and push upon us every idea we foster about our own wretchedness. And this is the other reason why, for the time being, existential guilt remains a one-way street. Most people do not want to feel guilty and do not want others to accuse them of being so, let alone those with ill intent toward them. Only modern Europeans are happy to be self-loathing in an international marketplace of sadists. While the Western and European nations have been lacerating themselves and, themselves and expecting the world to lacerate them for the behavior of their ancestors, no serious authority or government has recommended that any other people should be held responsible for the hereditary crimes of their people. Not even for crimes committed in living memory. It might be because there are few sadists in the West, or more likely it is because there are not enough masochists in other countries for such a mission to have any chance of success. The Mongol invasions of the Middle East in the 13th century remain among the worst brutalities in recorded history. The massacres at Nishapur in 1221, in Aleppo and Harem, and the sacking of Baghdad in 1258 not only saw the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of men, women, children, but the despoliation of unimaginable quantities of knowledge and learning. If we hear much of the Crusades and little of these brutalities today, it is not only because the idea of tracing Mongol descendants and blaming them would be difficult, but because no Mongol descendant would be receptive to the idea of being blamed for the atrocities of their forebears. Only in the nations of Europe and their descendants allow themselves to be judged by their lowest moments. But what makes this self-laceration more sinister is that it should go on at the same time as Europeans are expected to treat everybody else only by their highest moments. While it is common enough to hear the Spanish Inquisition or the Crusades brought up in any debate on religious extremism, it is equally common to hear them once again about Andalusia or the Islamic Neoplatonists. It cannot be coincidence that these two things, judging ourselves by worst moments and everyone else by their best, have gone hand in hand. It is a demonstration that what is going on in the West is a political as well as psychological affliction. Nevertheless, although modern European guilt is currently described as though it is a terminal condition, there is no certainty that it will be. Will young Germans, the grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and eventually great-great-grandchildren of those people who lived through the 1940s always feel the taint of their heredity? Or is it possible that at some point there will come a moment when young people who have done nothing wrong themselves say enough with this guilt? Enough of the feelings of subservience that such guilt forces upon them. Enough of the idea that there is something uniquely bad in their past. And enough of a history they were never a part of, of being used to tell them what in their present and future they can or cannot do. It is possible. 
Perhaps the guilt industry is a monogenerational phenomenon to be replaced by who knows what. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.